0: How's everybody doing this morning? I have a heavy task. I have to, this morning, preach Genesis chapter 3. The title of the sermon is The Fall. And I'm going to give you the three parts of the sermon so you can kind of watch for it as I walk through it before I pray. So go ahead and look at Genesis chapter 3. And in section 1, we're going to see as a subtitle to the sermon, A Dance with the Devil, uh, verses one through thirteen, a dance with a devil. We we'll get to see a conversation between the enemy, the serpent enemy, between Eve and Adam. Section two, we go down and we see God's judgment from verses verses four, fourteen to nineteen. God's judgment, and then verse twenty down through twenty four, we get to see God's answer with the gospel. Those are the three three sections. But first, I want to remind you of what uh, Adam and Eve had entered into with God out of Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. And I want to read this just by way of reminding you before we do this. I'll read this section, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden, Eden, to work and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam was then instructed to tell Eve about this. And we all can be on the same page real quick by by answering this question. What would happen if Adam and Eve were to eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden? What would happen? They were to die. Okay? So we're going to talk about these things in Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray. Father God, help us. We want to understand uh, there's so much... In this passage, it's so concise and precise and it answers so much uh, about why the things are in our world the way the things are. We see death, we we see destruction, we see famine, we see poverty, we see war, we see sex trafficking, we see, I just saw this week, a hundred and something children rescued out of sex trafficking. It's unbelievable just the atrocities that happen in our world. We see sin, we see brokenness. We see those who commit sins, which are all of us, and we see those who have been sinned against. And so on the the backdrop of all the wonderful things we've been thinking about creation, it's clear to all of us that something's gone wrong. That something is is deeply shattered, broken, messed up about our world. I went down to Haiti and I saw uh, mass graves of 75,000 people. It's just things that just seem just awful. They not just seem awful, they are awful. So how do we approach such things? With a world full of smiles and a world full of tears, how do we think about, biblically, these things? And I'm I'm asking for your help this morning. I'm asking for your help to lead us and to guide us through Genesis chapter 3. Help us not fall for the age-old, ancient tactics of the enemy. Help us to see your work on our behalf uh, through all this. And I just trust that you're going to, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, in Genesis 3, we see an ancient, modern conversation with the enemy. I call it ancient because it is indeed ancient. We see it right here in the beginnings, in the book of beginnings, in Genesis chapter 3, we see this conversation. And yet, it is a continuing conversation because the enemy's tactics are just repeated over and over and over again. Let me show you what I mean. If you'd look with me. And Genesis 3 verse 1, now the serpent, I'm going to refer to him as the serpent enemy. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We see the beginnings of this conversation. Here's how it's going to go. We're going to see uh, the enemy, the serpent enemy talk. Then we're going to see Eve talk. And we're going to see uh, Adam kind of just over here with his hands in his proverbial pockets. Now, he's naked, so he doesn't have pockets, but uh, maybe like this. We're going to see him standing by and kind of watching the whole conversation happen, happen. We're going to see Adam's sin here in a little bit, but we're just going to get a window into. It's like the Scriptures just open it up for us and just give us a seat. We can be flies on the wall. Hey, John, how's it going? We can see we can be flies on the wall and just kind of watch this conversation happen, and so it's going to go uh, the enemy Eve, the enemy Eve, and then again Adam, and then my son will scream, and then uh, this is how this uh, conversation goes. So the first thing the enemy does, and this is why it's ancient and very very modern, is he calls into question God's word. He says to Eve, "Really, did God really say this?" He questions the clarity and the authority. Of God's word. And Satan wants Eve, wanted Eve, and he wants you to question first God's word, and then to move from questioning God's word to disbelieving God's word, and then to disregarding God's word, and then finally to hating God's word. Uh, this is the tactic of Satan. He wants you to question, God really say, do you really think he means that? And what Adam should have done is he should have said, yes, he really means that. He really does mean that, but he doesn't. He stands idly by, as we'll see. And this is the same thing today. If you look at any sort of classic uh, American, American, uh, American evangelical circles or in, in former denominations that have raised up in the United States, and if you look at evangelicalism in the 1800s in Germany uh, and, and in Europe and what was brought into even in Charles Spurgeon Day and the great, great, bit, great Britain in the late uh, 19th century, uh, it, what brings in liberalism, the first step, is questioning God's Word. Is if you question God's word, then you can begin to question what God has clearly taught. And then the trajectory of the theological thought of the denomination or of the particular church begins to wander. And all of a sudden, uh, you begin to question everything God says. Did God really say what he says? Is this really true? And, and to the point today that there's some denominations that even question the return of Christ. Will Christ even return? Did he actually physically raise from the dead? And that's the trajectory of liberal thought that begins with, did God really say? And this is what Adam, or excuse me, this is what the enemy wanted Eve to question. Uh, So we see already though, in verse 2 and 3, we see that Adam did in fact, because if you remember from last week, Adam's responsibility with everything that he was given and his one day wife would be to work for her and to keep and care for her. So it means that it would be required of him to pass along the information that God had given him in Genesis 2. So he had passed that information along. We see that because Eve repeats this information to the enemy. In verse 2 and 3, she says this, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Okay, let me ask you this. Up to this point, is she right? yeah, she repeats what Adam told her to a T. But then something is added on. We see this in verse 3. She said, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, I want you to think about this for a second, because we, if we look back in Genesis chapter 2, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, there is no command about touching or not touching the fruit. She adds a little bit. To the command of God, so it goes like this. Uh, well, uh, Adam may be thinking this, and we don't have, uh, uh, you know, a dialogue between Adam and Eve that we know about that's in, that's recorded. But it goes like this: Adam could be thinking, "Well, you know, if we uh, can't eat it, we might as well. I might as well just tell her that we can't touch it either. So I'm going to create a law so that we can keep the laws. And so in the garden we have the beginnings, the beginnings of. Religion, or the message of religions of the world that says you can save yourself. You uh, can do better than what God can do. And so uh, man-made laws were created here in the garden. And man-made laws are still today rampant. In fact, our denomination, uh, I love our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, but they are notorious for uh, making and building some man-made laws, unfortunately. You may have a denominational background that uh, you grew up in that made just tons of laws and rules that you, you have no idea why you do or don't do them, but uh, they're laws and rules that are passed on down to you. Um, this is how it is. If you go back to the fifties, sixties, or sixties, fifties, forties, there's a list of laws even in conservative denominations. If you you know you can't go to movies, you can't play cards. Fill in the blank. You can't do. You can't do. You can't do. Uh, you, can't dance, uh, you can't do. You can't dance. You can't do whatever it may be. Now you may say, "Well, Jared, I can't dance." Okay, well, I'm not talking about ability to dance or not, but um, but the actual freedom to do so. So all of these rules, and and we see this in the beginning. Um, and so, we want to uh, be on guard against that. So, uh, verse 4, the conversation uh, continues and we see the enemy talking again. Look at verse 4. says, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. You shall not surely die. So, the enemy, the serpent enemy, introduces a new idea. God is holding back on you. God is holding back on you. If If you eat of that fruit, you're not going to die. You're in fact going to be like God. That's what he says. He says, you will not surely die. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. God is not being as generous with you as He could be, Eve. There are some things within that fruit that are good, that you can have. And God just simply doesn't want to give you those things. This idea is still being introduced by the enemy. God is holding back on you. You can do a better job for yourself than God can do for you. Your ideas and your plans for your life, Jared, are better than God's ideas and his plans for your life. Men, women, students in the room, children, God is smarter than you for your life. He is not holding back on you. Even in seasons of difficulty and tears, he is not holding back on you. He is not holding back on you in the day of your biggest pain. The enemy will come and say, see, God doesn't love you. He's still doing this today. Remember, God gave Adam and Eve everything, and yet they still apparently were seduced by the idea that maybe there's something more. There's longings in the human heart. It, this is the story of Ecclesiastes, seen right here in Genesis chapter 3. Well, maybe I'll finally be happy when I get the job that I want. Maybe the next kid will finally bring the happiness and the peace that I want. Maybe my, my next situation in life, maybe it's just always, you know, it's like the light's always in the head. You know, you can always see the light in the tunnel and you're like, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. And then you get there and you realize, well, this isn't it. Well, this is what the, these desires is, is, it's seen right here early on in Genesis three. Verse five, the saga continues. She says, "You will be like God knowing good from evil." In verse six, excuse me, it says, "So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what did she do? She took of its fruit. And eight. here's how it went in the mind and the heart of Eve it looks good it feels right I think God's holding back on me I am going to trust my wisdom and the serpent enemy and I'm going to get for myself what God is unwilling to give me sound like your story I'm going to do things my way Well, Bon Jovi wrote a song about that I think didn't he How's it go? Should to sing it? Oh, that John Bon Jovi can bring some wisdom every once in a while. Uh, things my way—that's not the way we live. But that's the again the strategies, the way of the enemy. He wants you to think God's holding back, and that you are smarter than God. And Eve took the bait. The covenant of works is broken. She took and ate of the fruit, in verse 6, and she also gave some to her husband, who was right there with her, and he ate. He ate. Eve was right there, and Adam was right there. Adam was watching this whole dialogue go, go down with the enemy, and he just stands idly by and just watches it happen. He should have intervened. He should have cried out. He should have said, no, God was clear. Here's exactly what God said. Here's exactly what He intends for us. He is good. He's given me everything. And He gave me this beautiful woman. And yet He stood there and watched the serpent enemy deceive His bride. He should have stepped up. He did not. And in fact, verse 9, it says this, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God Holds Adam responsible for this sin because, after all, it was Adam's responsibility to work and to keep and care for his wife. And he advocated that responsibility. He left it and let the enemy just have his way with Eve. And Eve took the bait. God's covenant was broken. Adam was seen to be passive and he stood by. It is worth noting that within every single failure of Adam, there is the victory of Christ to discover. When we talk about Adam failing with his bride, we should be thinking, wait a minute, Jesus has a bride. And he didn't fail, and he hasn't failed with his bride. He purchased his bride. He's died for his bride. He's gathering his bride. He's protecting his bride. He's cultivating his bride. He's working with his bride. Jesus prevails in every way that Adam fails. We'll see more about that here in a little bit. Look with me, looking in uh, verse 8. And they heard the sound. The chasm happens. The the fear begins to come over Adam and Eve. They realize that they're naked. Excuse me, look at verse 7 with me. The eyes of both, after they took of the fruit and ate, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed for themselves leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And here begins the the or here is the birthplace of save yourself religion. It's right here. They felt separated, they knew that they were naked, they felt ashamed about it, about it. And some of you when you stand before the mirror naked, feel a little bit ashamed about it yourself. <clears throat> like man, I got to hit the gym. You know, others, you know, anyways, we don't need to talk about that. But um, they were naked and unashamed in the garden, and now shame comes upon them, and they try to do something about it. They tried to cover themselves. They knew they were naked, so they tried to fix it themselves. Their eyes were open. They knew they were messed up. And this started the long, sad tale of humans, like, running in a wheel of a hamster. It's just running and running and running and not getting anywhere. I'm trying to fix what I screwed up myself. We want to fix ourselves, humanity. And we reject that we're sinful. We may accept that we're broken, but we try to fix our brokenness without trying to repent of our sinfulness. And this is what the world does. Yeah, I can accept that I'm broken, but not that I'm sinful. And so I'm going to fix it or I'm going to get somebody else to fix me or I'm going to wait until that person comes into my life or I'm going to wait until that situation comes into my life and I'm finally going to be fixed. So instead of deep repentance over rebellion, no, I'll get this fig leaf and cover myself. I'll do it. I've got this. And this is the opposite of the Christian message. The Christian message is it. We fix it. The Christian message is throwing ourselves by the grace of God on a God who fixes it for us. Verse 8-11, through 11, we see the sad consequences. We see Adam and Eve hiding. And they were heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Sad because they had before in the garden, they had communion with God. They walked. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. And now God shows up after the rebellion and they go and they hide from the presence of God. They know inherently at this moment that they cannot be in God's presence. They run. And God calls to Adam. And He says, Have you eaten of the tree? And here's what begins to again happen. And this is again the story of our day. There begins a blame game. There's blame shifting. Any blame shifters in here? It's not my fault. That's actually their fault. When I played high school basketball, we'd watch the tape uh, from the game before. And uh, we'd watch the tape. We'd be in the film room. And uh, uh, coach would say, Jared, why did you do this? And I would pass the blame because I wanted to get more playing time. So I'd pass the blame and say, well, it's somebody else's fault. I wouldn't take the blame. I was a master at blame shifting. I remember one time in particular, poor Joel Allen. I threw Joel Allen on the bus, a buddy of mine, because, and said something was his fault. I remember it to this day because I was trying to protect myself masterful at the blame game. We see this starting in verse 12. God said, Had you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? In verse 12, the man said, The woman who you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Here's what Adam does. Adam blames Eve and then blames God. It was the woman you gave me, God. If you, just, if you wouldn't have given her to me, yeah, I wouldn't have saying I wouldn't have a helpmate, but I wouldn't have been in this mess. God, that's on you. Adam throws his wife under the bus and then tries to attack God and say, "God, this whole thing, this all these shenanigans, God, that's your fault." God, if you wouldn't give her to me, this would have it wouldn't have happened. And remember, when the enemy talked with Eve, Adam did nothing. When God talked to Adam, Adam threw her under the bus. When God talked to Eve, Adam stood silently by. Or excuse me, when the enemy talked to Eve. Adam didn't, just passive, just quiet. Didn't fight for her, nothing. Then when God talks to Adam, it's like a double whammy. Eve's like, what? What the heck? Well, who am I going to blame? Okay, well, it keeps going. Verse 13, then the Lord said to the woman, What is it that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent. The serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. <coughs> so we see nobody's to blame here, right? Nobody's to blame. Like, and fortunately, God sees through all this, and he knows exactly who to blame, but nobody's to blame. It's like the kid who eats the cookies out of the cookie jar and has got chocolate all over his face and then the mom and dad goes and asks, hey, uh, did you eat any cookies? Like, nope. Ah, it must have been the dog. I don't know. The dog definitely ate the cookies. Like, well, how did you get chocolate all over your face? I don't know. The dog did it. You know, it's like it's the blame game and the silliness of it. This is what Adam and Eve did. The enemy made me do it. And so, there's going to be consequences for this breaking of the covenant that humanity committed. And we're going to go through this. So, the dance with the devil is over. The judgment of God comes down. The gavel drops. Verse 14 and 15. Here's what God says to the enemy. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and the dust of the earth, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the offspring, or you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So first, this serpent enemy will be cursed. And this is, by all accounts, what we believe uh, to be the reason why most people don't like snakes. Snakes slither on the ground. Unless you're kind of a weird, oddball, crazy person, uh, you just don't really like snakes. majority of people don't like snakes. They wallow on the ground. And this, the serpent, using his uh, serpent skills through this enemy animal, or serpent animal, now is cursed to be on their belly. And There's a lot of mystery and all that of, and different views about all this. But then the enemy is told, and, and since then, so the curse uh, the curse now comes upon the animal kingdom. So cursed are you and, but on all livestock and all the beasts of the field. And so now the curse uh, that Adam and Eve brought on is going to come to the animal kingdom who did not sin. And the Adam, animal kingdom is going to feel the consequences of this. And when you see... These anim- animals fighting. When you watch uh, uh, Planet Earth, it's coming out, right? Planet Earth like 2.0 is coming out this next year, which is going to be really cool, because Planet Earth, the first one, like 10 years ago, was really cool. And this like HD stuff, it's going to be really crazy. So you're going to be able to see cheetahs and lions and everything just kill these gazelle and all that kind of stuff. When you see that, you realize, okay, that was the consequence that came down from the enemy sinning against God and against Adam and Eve. But then he's told that at some point your head will be crushed or it will be bruised. Now, some have labeled this the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the first evidences of uh, the enemy being crushed by a seed, singular seed. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the idea goes like this, uh, and this is probably where Carmen got his uh, song, where, um, (coughs) where there is a boxing match, And the enemy seems to defeat Jesus. Jesus is crucified. His heel is bruised. And then all of a sudden, He begins to get up. And He's not knocked down. And He gets up and He stands up and He knocks out the enemy and He wins. And the head of the enemy is crushed. Now again, there's debate around this. Pop out your uh, concordance, pop out your uh, commentaries and do some reading on this yourself uh, and find this out. But we do in fact know that this is what happened. The enemy was one day defeated and he will have final and full defeat one day. The enemy will not have his way. And all the things on this earth right now, is, uh, uh, God is giving permission to the enemy to do what the enemy does. He is not some free agent out here. Uh, it, it, we, he has a shelf life. And he, in fact, will be finally punished. It goes on, the woman has consequences. And notice that the consequences given down from God to the woman and to the man are specific to each's gender. God does not bring a generalized judgment upon humanity because He recognizes the differences between men and women because He created them that way, by the way. So God specifically speaks to the woman as woman, and He speaks to the man as man, and He gives them individual consequences. Now ladies, I'm sure that some of you wish that some of the consequences that come your way would be passed on to the husband, like birth pains, correct? It's like the pain that I endured was just staying up for like 38 hours, okay? And I like would fall like, you know, deep, deep pain that I had to experience. Um, Jordan, I've been in the room was not in a comfortable situation. Ladies, can you testify? Even with the sterilization, even with that big, huge needle down your back, having a baby still yet with modern medicine and modern technologies is not an easy thing. You would think now, right? We've been to the moon. Somehow or another, science could make it to where having a baby is just easy. With all the science out there and research, still yet, it hurts. It, it hurts. And this, in fact, is one of the consequences of Eve's sin. Here's what God says to Eve. To the woman, He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, here we're going to spend some time, and in verse 17 we're going to spend some time, because uh, conflict in marriage can be seen in the roots that go all the way back down these verses right here, okay? There's two general understandings of what this second consequence means, and the consequence, the second one, is your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What does that mean? So, number one, it means, the first view means this, is that the wife... The consequence of her sin is that she will have misguided desires and she will want to take the lead and pull the strings of her husband and to be the one who's really in charge. She will want to usurp the authority. She will want, her desire will be, and we get this because the word desire is only used three times in the whole Bible. This word in the Hebrew, it's translated desire. And the second time it's used is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, and it says this. The same way sin's desire was for Cain, So the wife, actually, let me just turn over and read this because I didn't write it down here. I thought it did. It says this, if you do well, you will be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So it's desire, sin's desire, not that we want to put uh, anthropologic or we don't want to put necessarily personal um, human uh, attributes to sin, but it's clear in this context that sin's desire over Cain is not a good desire. It wants Cain to fall. The enemy wants Cain to be bad and to fall into sin, but Cain was commanded by God to rule over it, and he doesn't. Do this. This is the first interpretation is that, ladies, you will want to be the one who's really in charge. And you're okay with saying, yeah, my husband's the leader of this family, as long as you're the real leader. If you can get what you want when you want it, you're okay with that. And so this usurping of authority, wanting God to tell you what God told the man. But there's a second interpretation here. And the second interpretation comes from a book called The uh, Gospel Centered Woman by Wendy Alsop. Some of the ladies here have went, read and went through that book and this uh, goes like this. The most straightforward reading of Genesis chapter 3:16 makes the most sense to me. Her. The woman's desire will be for her husband. Plain and simple. No contortions needed to accurately discern what God is saying here. The word desire in Genesis 3:16 can mean craving or longing. The issue is best understood if we make the simple substitution of God for her husband. So her desire should be for her God. Instead, her desire, craving, and longing is misplaced. And here's the kicker Women's problem is that they worship the men in their lives and look to them for affirmation and provision emotionally and spiritually. For things that God alone is supposed to provide. Their problem is adulter- adultery. So, women will, a consequence of their fall, uh, of the consequence of sin, women will look to men in their lives and want them to be for them what only God can be for them. And then they will judge the men in their lives accordingly. And so, the demand can be crushing for a husband for any man in the life of a lady. So these two interpretations show us and help us understand the conflict. And then it's not made any easier because it says in verse 16, the very last line, and he, speaking of the husband, shall rule over you. Sadly, servant leadership that Adam Enjoyed and Eve enjoyed, excuse me, in the garden of a husband who is for her to work and keep for her. Now, after the fall, is going ex- to rear its ugly head in rule and dominion in negative ways. And so now this conflict is here. The wife is going to want to pull the strings and have this authority and put unnecessary expectations on her husband. And the husband is going to want to rule her in a way that's not godly and that's not loving and in a way that's conditional. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Now, can we explain marital conflict through looking at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 and 17? We'll get to 17 here in a second. I think so. That tension is there. That's why we need the gospel to help us in our marriage, in marriage, and even prepare us for marriage. So He will rule over you. Instead of being a servant leader, He will be a bad authority over you. And marriage has been in conflict. Wives have had unmet longings and women have been oppressed ever since Genesis chapter 3. (coughs) Ladies from culture to culture to culture have have experienced just untold stories of oppression. Even in our country, people talk about all the better days of our country, the glory days, 50s and 60s, when there was racial prejudices and in fact when women were abused by their husbands and their husbands got away with it. It was just a thing. You don't talk about it. Just put the glasses on. That's not good. So in so many ways, our country has made progress. Those are good things. Unfortunately, women have received the brunt of bad leadership. Instead of servant leadership, it's been ruling and oppressing leadership from men. The man then has a consequence coming his way, and we're going to look at the answer here in just a second. Verse 17 to 19, look with me. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, I want you to hear this, men. Uh, often, God will give your wife wisdom that you don't have just to see if you're hearing, just to see if you're working and cultivating her, just to see. like Your wife has wisdom that you need to listen to, but ladies, I want you to hear this also. You're not always right, and the, the idea that comes when I got married, when I got married, there's a lot of men that just said, your wife's always right. That's one of the most cruel things that a man, that a man can do to his wife is just let her think she's right all the time. And ladies, there's sometimes that it's the right and godly thing to not listen to your opinion. And men, you have got to be humble enough to realize that you're an idiot if you think you're right all the time. Jared? So this is both ways. So Adam listened to the voice of his wife. He should have rejected, said, No, baby, the enemy is wrong. This is what God said. In a much tender voice, by the way, than that. Um, But because you've listened, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Not the livestock, but the ground. So now you have natural disaster, you have disorder, you have the power of God now seen in a tornado. You, (laughs) You have this judgment of God coming upon the created order. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Cursed is the ground. Things that you are supposed to work for, men, and things that you are supposed to cultivate and care for and to keep, are now broken, and it is going to be hard working and keeping a fallen world is like trying to climb Everest naked while wearing flip-flops. Like, can you can you climb Everest naked wearing flip-flops? Okay, sorry to mention naked now twice in a sermon, but um, you just can't. It's an impossible task that's given before us, man. Do you ever feel like the work is just never done out at the Porter House? Does work ever end? Like, we went out there, JT's got this tiny little mower that mows really nice. But you know what? That grass, and it looks, and it just takes forever. And you know what happens the next week? Just like all of us, when we mow, that grass grows. Wouldn't it be great if you just had to mow it one time and you didn't have to mow it the rest of the year? It just looked great. That's not how it is. Now, we are commissioned to work and to keep and care for a fallen world. And fallen wives. Man, this is, this is daunting. Often we look at this and we think, well, yeah, it doesn't sound that bad. Work's going to be hard. But now we're commanded to do something we simply can't do. And we need to feel the weight and the exhaustion of that. The man has to work and keep and care for fallen Eve now in a fallen world. As great as marriage can be, we talked about it last week, it's still work. Man, you still have to come up with dates that are beyond Netflix. You know? And it's hard to think of dates for some reason as a man. It's like, I don't know why, but it's going to be hard and it's going to require work to have a great marriage or to have a world in which you cultivate. So here are all the consequences. It means that when these consequences lay down, it means that humanity clearly has made our choice. Humanity's made our choice. Adam and Eve had free will in the garden and they abandoned that and they chose themselves they followed the enemy, and no longer do they have freedom. They entered into a stage that we are now birthed into, in which humans are in bondage. We are born into sin, and our heart is evil, and our will is corrupt. You want to watch people squirm? Tell them that they don't have free will, tell them that their will is in bondage. And watch palms sweat. And arguments flow, and we will defend our Trojan horse idol of free will to our, until our fingers and our fingernails are bleeding, fighting for our own free will. And the Bible is going to say, no, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Only freedom comes by being in Christ. And until you're in Christ, you are in bondage. And it's not just your mind or your sinful heart, it's your very will that's in bondage. And you need to be set free. It is blasphemous to a world to tell them that they're already free. They are not. And until Christ busts into your life, you were in bondage. And only now are you free. And we didn't know this. This is the sin that we enter this world into. Ephesians 2, 1-4 through says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Are we going to argue that that person's free? That's the epitome of bondage. Spiritual death. Anybody want to walk up to the morgue and talk to a, a dead body and say, hey, you want to go play some basketball with me? No, they can't. They're dead. Spiritual bondage. But verse four of Ephesians, chapter two, says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved, and raised us up in the heavenly places, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Then the coming ages, he might, uh, he, he might. Uh, the coming ages, he might... Oh, I'm going to forget it. Dang, I was on a good roll there. Uh, coming ages, he might... Uh, something, something, something. I don't know. It's really awesome. Okay, I just forgot it. Look up Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 when you get a chance. But we see a but God moment here in verse 20. The gospel of God. Look with me in verse 20 in Ephesians... Or excuse me, in Genesis 3. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins And clothed them. This is the gospel. Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with what was around them. They tried to fix it, and here is God covering them after shedding blood. How do you get an animal skin? An animal has to be killed. Blood was spilled, and God covered their shame for them. They couldn't do it. They covered themselves, and they still hid. They needed God to do something that they couldn't do for themselves. And God spilled blood and covered them with the animal's skin and clothed them. This is the message of the cross. In fact, every one of these failures. Adam did not love his father's words. He didn't listen to them. He did not fight the enemy. He did not protect his bride. He did not care for her. He sinned against God and his wife. Jesus Not only did he, did only what he saw his his father doing. He listened to his father's words. He fought the enemy in the desert and in the garden. He submitted to his father's will. And he went to the cross to die and save his bride. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. It doesn't end in Genesis chapter 3. It points us forward to a God who comes and sends his son to rescue a bride and to be the faithful Adam. And that's what we needed Jesus prevailed. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the message of the gospel. Verse 22, And the Lord said to them, Behold, the man man, has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was taken. He drove out the man at the at. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And now, friends, we have a tree of life called the cross. The cross was raised. And in His death, He provided life for us. And this is God's answer to the fall of man. God made a decision. Even before humans chose to rebel against Him, and God's decision was, I'm going to save sinners for My glory. And that's why we're here today. Genesis 3 was not the end of the story. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would help us. You would help us. I pray that this would give us a way to think about non-Christian friends. um, That they need new birth. They need to be brought to life. And God, only you can do that. They need you to cover their sin and shame and nakedness. Our world cannot fix itself. And we know in this election season, God, we need you to intervene. The hope is not a particular candidate. My goodness, I hope it's not this year. Our hope is not that. Our hope is that you're in charge. And our hope for our friends, our lost friends and family, is in, not in their will. It's in your will. A benevolent God who loves sinners who comes near not to those who call themselves righteous, and I don't need God, I got this, I can fix myself, but He comes to those who are in the gutter and just saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God, You are. Thank You for Your saving work, Your saving power. Thank You that, Jesus, You were the faithful Adam, and You came and did for us what Adam could not do. Holy Spirit, lead us in this time. Help our marriages through this, all these implications that have for marriage. Help our marriages be healthy as we understand the gospel of Jesus. God, bring repentance where repentance needs to be. Uh, just help us as we think, think about things we're about to sing, as we worship you. Holy Spirit, work in ways that only you can work. We trust that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.